have your Bibles, you can turn with me in them to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, looking at verses 9 through 20 this evening. Today we, of course, pick, off, pick up where we left off last week. Having introduced John's baptism and directed the heart of the hearers to a state of repentance and readiness for the ministry of Messiah. And that was, in fact, our application last week, that we would direct our own hearts to be ready to receive that which the Messiah, that which Jesus would would have to teach throughout the course of his ministry, that we would uh, not fail to position our own hearts when we read uh, of such things, such calls to repentance, uh, that we would live in a, a place of repentance ourselves and in a place of readiness to receive from the Lord. Well, very quickly, as everything is very quickly, very quick in the book of Mark, very quickly we enter into uh, the time of Jesus. Jesus enters the picture. Last time we were together, we focused upon the position of our hearts in the spirit of John's baptism of repentance to receive this ministry of Jesus Christ. And this ministry starts right away in the book of Mark. So we read in verse 9 of Mark chapter 1. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in the Jordan. So Jesus comes out of Nazareth where, where he had grown up and in the, into the region of Judea where John was baptizing at the river Jordan. And while Jesus is there, the Bible says a very interesting thing happens. Jesus is baptized of John in the Jordan River. And Mark is not focused upon this act at all except to express that it happened. Yet we find in the other Gospels that this was, in fact, a moment of some controversy and a moment of some consequence. Now, one of the things that I'm hoping to be able to do throughout the book of Mark is stay focused on what Mark is saying and not spend too much time in the other Gospels uh, giving you pre- effectively preaching Mark or Matthew and Luke um, uh, just by proxy through Mark. Um, so I'm going to try not to do that. Uh, and as a general rule, we, we, we're acknowledging here that Mark saw fit not to necessarily dwell on this, and we will see fit not to dwell on it as well. However, uh, this is... Uh, I'm just going to brush by what it is that we find here that is significant. If John was baptizing people in preparation for the ministry of Christ, and Jesus is in fact that Christ, then why, the question would be, does Jesus need to be baptized of John? As a matter of fact, John asks this in the other Gospels. He says, I need to be baptized of you. Why is it that you're coming to be baptized of me? And the reason that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15 is this. Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us, to fulfill all righteousness. Then the Bible says John suffered him and Jesus was baptized. Jesus said that by submitting himself to John's baptism, he was in fact fulfilling all righteousness. The idea is that Jesus, it was very important to Jesus that when he come, he come and it be expressed with clarity that he was not coming in contradiction to the law or in contradiction to the prophets, but in alignment with the law and the prophets. And what better way to show alignment with the law and the prophets than to be baptized by John and to align himself with this message of the Messiah's coming, with the message of the prophet. And so, he, so Jesus would align himself with the law and he would acknowledge that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophetic ministry, which John represented. Complete alignment, complete agreement. And of course, this would be much more important to the readers of Matthew, Right. As we understand the purpose of the books, why would it be so important that Matthew would tell of Jesus' baptism and the reason for Jesus' baptism? Well, because Matthew is intended to convince the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. And so it makes perfect sense that in Matthew, you would read of this controversy and you would read of, of the explanation for this controversy because that's important for a Jew to realize that Jesus came and he needed to be aligned with John and he did align himself with John and John did suffer him to be baptized. And so John, who is in the, that, that, that vein of the prototypical Old Testament prophet, the Elijah that should come, is in complete harmony with the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, Mark does not carry this purpose. Mark does not thus dwell upon this idea. We continue then, verses 10 and 11. And straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened, and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven, saying, Thou art my beloved Son. 
in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus submits himself to John's baptism. John uh, consents to baptize Jesus. And as Jesus comes out of the water, a good reminder that he was immersed in water in that moment of baptism. Like all baptisms, it was representative of death, burial, and resurrection. And so the idea of immersion in water makes the most sense. And that is obviously what we see. So Jesus comes out of the water, and the Bible tells us that they saw the heavens opened, and the Spirit descended like a dove upon Jesus. Luke 3, 21, telling us that the Spirit descended in the bodily shape uh, like a dove. So it was in the shape of a dove, not just uh, like a dove in manner, but like a dove in, in fashion. And with the Spirit of God resting upon Jesus in that bodily shape like a dove, a voice from heaven called out saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now remember how the book was introduced. We were introduced to the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here we see the first substantiation of that authority, the first substantiation of that position within the book as a voice from heaven declared as the Spirit of God rested on him in the bodily shape like a dove, Thou art my beloved Son. The point of Mark... Christ's authority. And this week establishes the source of that authority. Jesus did not claim authority just for himself. As a matter of fact, Jesus would go on to say in the other Gospels that if he is the only one that testifies of his authority, it doesn't mean a whole lot, but his works testify of him and the Father which is in heaven testifies of him. Jesus Christ is the beloved Son of God by the testimony of the Father and by the power of the Spirit of God which we see here in their distinct but interrelated persons for the basis of what we would call the Godhead or is often called by label the Trinity. We do not see the word Trinity in our Bibles. It's a theological label that's given to the idea that there are three persons, three distinct persons that make up the single God that we would consider to be the Godhead. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, and there's God the Holy Spirit. Each is not the other. The Father is not the Son, The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father. But all three of them are, in fact, God. And they operate and function in complete harmony of will, complete harmony of direction, complete harmony of intent. And in doing so, they form a singular God so that we boldly proclaim without any contradiction, that there is one God, that we serve one God, there is only one God, while simultaneously acknowledging that that God is three distinct persons, singular in mind, will, intent, and direction. And this is not necessarily something that is hard to imagine when we think of uh, the nature of the world around us, whether it be water, which uh, can take on three very distinct Manifestations. It can be a liquid, a solid, or a gas. Whether it be uh, the things that man makes, where we can see something that we call an engine, and yet how many moving parts are, are operating in complete harmony to make up that singular thing that we call an engine. And if you happen to take out one of those moving parts, it is no longer an engine. It will no longer do what it's supposed to do it is because all of its parts are not there. But perhaps the easiest one is ourselves. For we are made in the image of God, with a body, a soul, and a spirit. And yet we are one person. I do not address Sam's soul apart from his body. I do not talk to Josh's spirit apart from his soul. I talk to the men. I talk to them in their wholeness. They operate in their wholeness. Their spirit informs their soul, which informs their body. If one of them is broken, the others are affected. And as they operate in harmony, the body functions properly. When they are out of sync one with another, the body does not function. So it is that we see a Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, one God. And that of the Father and the Spirit in their distinct personhoods, We see that both testify to the identity of the authority 
identity and authority, excuse me, of the Son, and that's something that we certainly cannot overlook. The Son is in the water, having come out of the water, the Spirit of God rests upon Him. The voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son, the very Son of God. So that of our understanding of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Mark rests upon the foundation that Jesus' ministry is operating under the full and unreserved approval of the Father. So he has, he has aligned himself in these, in these short verses. He has aligned himself with the Old Testament prophets. He has aligned himself with the Old Testament law. And he has been testified to by God the Father and the Holy Spirit of God. And in this we find an, 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 an absolute establishment of Jesus' identity and authority. Next, Jesus will validate his alignment, submission, and authority through those temptations in the wilderness. So the Bible says in verses 12 and 13, And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. So Jesus is driven out into the wilderness and uh, he is there for 40 days. Again, notice how much is not mentioned here regarding this very important event. If you're familiar with it, you may have noticed that a few things are missing from this account. We do not learn that Jesus fasted for those 40 days and was afterward probably quite hungry and probably quite weak. We do not learn about the three distinct temptations that Satan brings following those 40 days of fasting, attempting to cause Jesus to step outside of submission to the Father's sovereign authority. But only that Jesus was tempted after those 40 days, and afterwards the angels ministered unto him. An establishment of the reality that Jesus was tempted, that he overcame those temptations, and that he, through the power of the Spirit validated himself to be tempted like as we and yet without sin. In this, we are asked once again to explore why. Why is this account here? Especially in such general terms. Well, there is a reason, right? There's a reason why Mark is relaying these accounts but not explaining them. There's a focus here which is accomplishing some purpose but that purpose is obviously a, a being accomplished apart from simply telling us the narrative. Because he doesn't really tell us the narrative. And in this, I, I, I'm, I'm hitting on this, and I'll hit on it throughout the book, to encourage you when you read these things to be thoughtful. Why is it Mark included it? Why is it he chose not to include other things? If there's a purpose to the book, if there's a purpose to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, let us identify that purpose and align with our, under, our understanding with that purpose as it relates to our interpretation, as it relates to our understanding. Now, I've given you my theory that in all of these things, the authority of Jesus and the identity of the Son of God is in view. But as one who is studying the Scriptures, I hope you're turning this over in your own mind. Why would Mark write about this account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, but write about it in such a generalized manner? I mean, he could have skipped it. John did. Why didn't Mark? Maybe you have a theory. Maybe you have a thought. Maybe you agree with me. Maybe you don't. What goals does Mark have in mind here? Be thoughtful as you're reading the scriptures. That you may glean what the author intended out of them. So we have now, through verse 13, been introduced to John the Baptist, been introduced to Jesus of Nazareth. We have seen John calling the nation to position their hearts to receive the authority of Messiah. We have seen this Messiah introduced and this source of authority as described and validated to be God the Father through a statement that in Jesus he is well pleased, as well as the Holy Ghost, by resting upon him so that Jesus is performing the will of the Father in the power of the Spirit of God. Then finally, we see direct proof that Jesus is pleasing to the Father through his success at rebuffing the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. Jesus is the Son of God. He's been declared to be the Son of God. He's aligned himself with the law and the prophets. He has been declared by the Father. 
He has been empowered by the Spirit, and he has been tempted in all points like as we, and yet without sin. This man is the man who is the Son of God. Verse 14 and 15. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So we now explore the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. John is arrested and put in prison. Also, not a lot said there. He passes off the scene. And Jesus, following his baptism and temptations in the wilderness leaves Judea and comes into Galilee, the Bible says. And as I mentioned in my book sermon a couple of weeks ago, Galilee will be almost the exclusive focus of the Gospel of Mark for the first nine chapters, with the final seven chapters dedicated to the final days of Jesus' first advent upon this earth. Galilee was a region which resided in the north part of the area that the Romans called Palestine. It was comprised of Galilee in the north, Judea in the south, and the region of Samaria was in between. Jerusalem was unequivocally the heart of Judea, and Jesus' early earthly life was in Nazareth, which was a part of Galilee. Most of Jesus' ministry in the book of Mark would center around the city of Capernaum, which was on the sea of Galilee. And as I just said, Galilee is effectively the exclusive focus of Mark for the bulk of the book's teaching. So Jesus comes back to Galilee and he is preaching what Mark calls the gospel of the kingdom of God. We've talked about this word gospel already and what it means. It means good news. And the gospel of the kingdom is described in verse 15 this way. The time is fulfilled... And the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus' message was that the days that the prophets had foretold, John being that prototypical prophet with whom Jesus aligned, the days that they foretold when God would send his servant to deliver the nation, to overcome their enemies and usher in salvation and peace, this time was at hand. It was here. It had come. It had come through the king because the king had come. And if the king had come, then the kingdom was at hand. But the gospel of the kingdom also came with a statement of expectation, and this is important. It came with a promise. The kingdom is at hand, but it came with an expectation. Repent ye and believe the gospel. And what we find within our method of interpretation as we look at the scriptures is that one could not come without the other. The kingdom of God which was offered on that day because the king was there to establish the kingdom of God. And yet in order for the kingdom of God to be established, there had to be something first. There had to be something, that, that a prerequisite. And that prerequisite was repent and believe the gospel. The people had to accept the king and the conditions of the kingdom. And this is where, of course, the problem is going to begin. Because the leaders of the nation, as interested as they might have been in the political and military dominance that the kingdom of God promised in the Old Testament, that they would cast off the yoke of their enemies and that they would live in peace and prosperity under their own fig tree. They had no thought of submission. No thought of repentance. Their mind was on dominance, not obedience. They were happy to hear of the idea of the kingdom, but not on the terms that Jesus was prescribing. In other words, they wanted what Jesus was talking about, but they didn't want the authority that he brought with it. And this is not uncommon among religious folks, is it? That we want the promises of God that come through the Spirit of God that we'll read in our Bibles about love and joy and peace and long-suffering and goodness and temp uh, uh, temperance and faith and meekness. Uh, I missed one there. Goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. No, I just got them out of order. So we, we read of those things. We read of contentment and we read of faith and we read of all of those, the, those wonderful fruits of the Spirit of God. But there is and has always been a singular qualification for those benefits to be realized in our lives, hasn't there? Obedience. 
acknowledgement of and submission to authority, namely God's authority. That's always been the requirement. Walk in the Spirit. Paul said in Galatians 5, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Abide in me, Jesus said in John 15, because as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except to divide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. That's the requirement. Abide. Walk in the Spirit. Submit. Obey. And we want all the benefits, but sometimes we're not interested in the authority. But the fact of the matter is, Christian, it doesn't work that way. So instead, we go about to seek the benefits apart from the authority. And that doesn't work. And so instead, we start to mimic the benefits apart from the authority. We say, love, I can do that. Joy, I can do that. Long-suffering, I can do that. And we start to mimic the benefits of the Christian walk, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. We fake spiritual power through emotion. We fake spiritual power through purchasing power. So we will seek to instill upon us some feeling that we might be able to interpret as love or some feeling that we might be able to interpret as joy or some feeling that we might be able to interpret as peace. And maybe it's medication-induced. Maybe it's music-induced. Maybe it's money-induced. And then we find ourselves in this place, which is really no different than anyone else, but we give it a Christian name, and we say, there's the power of God. But it's a cheap copy. It's a counterfeit. We gin up feelings that we call joy, but then we find them to be inconsistent, fleeting, and unstable. And that is not joy, Christian. That's, that might be happiness. Happiness is the roller coaster of life. Happy, sad, happy, sad, happy, sad, happy, sad. Joy is the abiding contentment and peace that resides above those circumstances, rooted in the character of Jesus Christ and our relationship with Him. We gin up feelings that we call love. And then we place conditions upon that love, which is no love. We have a self-serving love, which is no love. We call it love. We call it joy. But it has no power. And this is what we will see in the book of Mark. A people who want the benefits of the kingdom, and we see this actually in all of the Gospels, a people who want the benefits of the kingdom without submitting themselves to the king. How can you have the benefits of the kingdom if you won't submit yourself to the king? They want the power, but not the authority. Because they wanted to maintain that power and authority in themselves. And God forbid that we should want that as well. We had a testimony of that in our message this morning. Even a, a, a struggle to say who is actually on the throne of my own life. I don't want to go in that direction. I don't want to do that thing. There's, the, the natural part of me says, no, thank you. But the, the spiritual part of me says, are you willing? Who's on the throne? Can you have the power of the kingdom without submitting yourself to the authority of the king? You can't do it, Christian. So the leaders, the people of Jesus' day, they didn't actually want the kingdom of God to come. They wanted God to give them a kingdom. And that was not God's plan. As a matter of fact, it sounds a lot more like what Satan was offering Adam in the Garden of Eden, does it not? Than what Jesus came offering in his day. Satan came offering a, the means by which for Adam to become the king of his own kingdom. And when Jesus came and said the kingdom of God is at hand and called them to, to, to align themselves with the king, to submit themselves to the king, to accept the king, they instead sought to claim for themselves the kingdom, just as Adam did in his day. 
And so we need to be careful with this as well. What are we actually looking for from God when we make our requests to him? When we open the Bible, are we simply looking for some sort of fleeting something or other whereby we can exercise enough willpower to get ourselves through the day? Or are we seeking the power of God? His power, His way, by faith and submission? Or am I attempting to work somehow His power my way? Which will always and inevitably become my power my way. Because God does not share His power and His glory with another. That's much of what today has been focused on, has it not? As it is related to our desire unto fasting and prayer. There may be many means and methods by which God will bring about what we have desired in our hearts as it relates to this church and its future and a place to call home and everything else. But what we desperately need is not our power, our way, our solutions, our methods, our will. We desperately need the king to pour out of the abundance of his kingdom into our little church bring about his will, his way. And we seek that in the methods he has prescribed. Verses 16 and 17. Now as he, that would be Jesus, walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. We come to Jesus then calling those who would become his closest followers and eventually the apostles of the early church. And it begins with two men named Simon and Andrew. And these two men are brothers. They are, at the time of Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, casting their nets into the sea uh, because they are fishers. Like, that's that's what fishers do. They cast their nets into the sea. Now, Simon is the name for the one whom Jesus and the Scriptures will most regularly call Peter. His name is also in the Scriptures as Cephas. Now, Peter and Cephas are the same name. Both of them mean rock or stone. Only Peter is in Greek and Cephas is in Hebrew. His original name was Simon. And he was given the name Peter, Cephas, by our Savior Jesus Christ. And as Jesus passed by their boat, he says to them, Come ye after me and I will make you fishers of men. And this is, by all accounts, a very strange description. Is Jesus inviting them to become kidnappers here? I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. The text here, nor any other gospel, really gives us any insight into what Jesus is saying until we view the broader context of Jesus' ministry. It's as we look from it's, it's as we look back from where we are now that we can understand what it meant that Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. When we view in the broader context of Jesus' ministry and then Jesus' final commissions to his disciples to continue the work that he began so that what we find Jesus to be saying here is that his work will be to call men to the Father by grace through faith and that this work is a work which will not end when he leaves the earth but would instead be handed down to his followers from generation to generation who would be commissioned to go out into the world and tell all who will listen of the gospel of Jesus Christ and seek to bring those men and those women into the gospel's truths and into its promises and into its power under the king. So that the task of the believer is very much similar to the task of the fisherman. We go into a location and we cast out that truth. And we see what men and women are biting on that day. And as the Holy Spirit draws them, we compel them to believe and find in Jesus so great salvation. And so in this way, we catch men. Sometimes they will bite, sometimes they won't. One day a certain lure or bait might work, the next day it doesn't. One day you go to the fishing hole and they're really biting, the next day that same fishing hole is dead. So we just keep fishing. If by any means we might just pluck one out of the waters of their own damnation. And we read of these men's response in verse 18. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. 
They forsook their nets and they followed Jesus. They set aside their ideas, their aspirations. They responded to the authority of Jesus Christ to do something beyond themselves, to invest in others rather than themselves, to catch men rather than to catch fish. Catching fish will net them a lot more money, will net them a lot more uh, uh, material capacity, but catching men will net them rewards in the kingdom that the king has come to give. We finish our passage for today in verses 19 and 20 and then we'll apply. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the ship mending their nets. Who also, excuse me, were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. So we see a very similar instance here, first with Andrew and Simon, now with James and John. Also brothers, who were also fishermen, They were fishermen with their father Zebedee. Uh, More specifically at this time, though, they were not fishing as, as Simon and Andrew were. More specifically at this time, they were mending their nets because nets with holes in them is a pretty self defeating idea. Jesus called them, and the Bible says that they left their father in the ship with his hired servants, and they went after Jesus, responding to their understanding of the authority and the power of the king. This time, however, the perspective is not necessarily about them leaving their economic prospects, as we might think of with Simon and Andrew, who were busy about the work of catching fish, presumably, if you're catching with a net, it's not just for your family, presumably so that they could sell fish, so that they could provide for their families. In this one, however, what do we see? We see a perspective directly of James and John leaving their father. With his hired servants, they were mending their nets. The perspective, not just of leaving economic prospects, but leaving family as well. And it is here that we stop for the week and draw a couple of applications as it relates to what we have found in our text this evening. Application number one. The call of the gospel is an authoritative call to leave all and follow. Simon and Andrew were casting their nets. Jesus says, follow. James and John were mending their nets with their father. Jesus said, follow. And what are these men to do? And when I say the call of the gospel, we are not just talking about the call of the gospel unto being born again. We are talking about the call of the gospel in the life of those who are called to follow Jesus Christ. The good news is not just of the beginning, not just of the entrance into the kingdom. The good news is of the kingdom. They are at a crossroads. James, John, Andrew, Simon at this moment. These men are weighing authority in their lives. Life claims an authority over us all, does it not? We must eat. We must sleep. We live in these bodies of flesh. These are good and needful things to care for the body. Simon, as we will see later in this very chapter, is a married man. He has children. He has a duty and a responsibility to his wife and kids. Fishing is his living. That's how he puts food on the table, no pun intended. James and John are working with their father. Perhaps it's the family business. In this moment, Jesus says, follow me. Does does a man have a duty to his father? Yeah. Does not the authority of life in society call for us to care for father father and mother? It does. Does not a man have a duty to his wife and children? Absolutely. Does not... The call of the scriptures call us unto that duty as well. It does. And yet here we find the one who has inspired the scriptures, the king himself, and he says, follow me. Could Andrew, Simon, James, John believe that God will both be able to provide for the needs of them and their responsibilities while simultaneously exhorting them unto his will for their life? Could they both follow Jesus and do the things that God had called them to do? Inevitably, they can. Why? Because it's God who's calling them. There is no contradiction. There is no conflict. The question then is not whether this man has power. They've seen that already and they'll see it a lot more. The question is, do they believe in that authority? Does the authority of society's expectations override the gospel's call? Does the needs of the body override the gospel call? 
If the one calling you is the very Son of God, then will Simon's wife and children be cared for? They will. If the one calling you is the very Son of God, will James and John's father be taken care of? He will. The call of the gospel has always been a call to follow. It has been a call to set aside the promises of this life for the promises of the life to come. And often those things are not in contradiction. I can have my job and I can lead my wife and children and care for my parents and do those things within the scope of the gospel's claims upon my life. But what happens when the gospel asks more of me, Christian? What happens when Christ calls me to follow him somewhere else? What happens when Christ asks you to set aside your ambitions for something distinctly different for the sake of the gospel? It's very similar to what we heard this morning, isn't it? Whose authority will you submit to on that day? Your own authority or the authority of the one who has called you? The gospel asks, not necessarily that you and I would give all. Not in every case. The gospel does not necessarily ask you to give all, but it most certainly does ask you to leave all. Do you understand the distinction? To leave all is when I sever in my heart my loyalty to that thing that might stand in the way of me doing what God has asked me to do. To give all is when God actually takes it from me to do what he's asked me to do. In this time and in this uh, particular season of, of uh, our lives in the United States of America in 2023, we have not necessarily, many of us have not necessarily been asked to give all for the sake of the gospel, but that doesn't mean that you are not asked to leave all. To have severed in your heart the connections to those things in your life that might be holding you back from what God would have you to do. What might it be, Christian? Pride? Ambition? Fear? Material things? Societal expectations? Parental expectations? Church expectations? You may not have to give all, but have you left all? Have you set all earthly claims to you under, have you submitted them to the heavenly claims of our Savior Jesus Christ? So that if God says go, you're ready to go. Now, Jesus doesn't elaborate upon this idea in Mark, but he does in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39, we read this. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. We'll talk about a similar concept that Jesus will present in Mark 10. Very special passage to me. We'll get there. Jesus warns that for many, there will come a day when the loyal, your loyalty to the gospel... We're not talking about just being born again here, Christian. Your loyalty to living out the authority of Jesus Christ in your life, which is the gospel, the kingdom of God, will be tested against other loyalties in your life. Family, income, society, expectations. And in that day, Jesus says, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Father, I can't obey you. I have this earthly obligation. That's an unworthy statement regarding our Savior. It is a wonderful thing to love your father and mother. I'm not saying don't do that. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing to love your sons and daughters. You ought to do that. But at which point such love stands in contradiction to the gospel? At which point any loyalty to these earthly relationships takes precedence over your loyalty to the gospel? You are outside the call of the gospel. You have stepped into a type of idolatry whereby you have placed something on this earth, some claim to your life on this earth above the claim of the king. And this brings us to the great Christian paradox, one which we will also explore in Mark a little bit further in Mark 8.35. That in order to find true life, 
you must lose your life. Doesn't mean you must die physically. It means you must leave all. You must be on the altar. And a man that is willing to lose his life for Christ's sake, that is the man who will find the life that God has for him. True life. And this is a faith proposition in our lives. What does that mean? It means there's nothing I can do to convince you of it. It is up to you to believe it. It's because it's a paradox. It's not how we see the world work. I don't give up my life to gain life. I preserve my life to gain life. But not in the spiritual, not in the heavenly. In the heavenly, I yield myself. And in yielding myself, I gain all. In losing to Christ, I find victory. It's the great paradox of the Christian life. A paradox that's asking you to stand upon the authority of Christ alone. To see something through the eyes of faith that is unseen through the physical eyes. Where in order for you to trust this thing, in order for you to stand up in the day that the gospel asks you to go and to go, though it contradicts those other things that might be asking things of you in this life, and your, your, your natural presupposition, your natural inclination is to preserve yourself. And then the gospel is saying, lose that for me. Give that up for me. Die to that for me. There's only one thing on that day that will drive you to do that, and that is a proper orientation to the authority of Christ. If you will yield what you think is best, yield your priorities, yield the advantages that stand before you in the physical senses, and so in this way lose your life, so in this way die to self, in this yielding of yourself, you will in fact find the very source of true life and of abiding life. And this is the claim which does not stand upon the proof of your senses. Cannot be tested in a laboratory. This is a claim by Christ which rests entirely upon his authority. And those who respond to this claim and this call will do so only as they respond, submit themselves unto Christ as their authority in life. So that's the question this evening. First question. Are you living in the gospel this evening? Are you living out the gospel's call on your life? Are you living in that faith this evening, Christian? Have you left all and followed Christ? Have you lost your life for Christ's sake? Whose authority do you follow? Whose claims carry the weight of priority in your life? And let me just say this as, uh, before we move on. Oh, we're not quite moving on yet anyway, but let me just say this quickly. The gospel's claim upon your life does not have to be stunning or fantastic. Mothers, for many of you, the, the, your season of life, the gospel claim upon your life is to lose your life in your children. To die to self daily that you might raise them unto Christ. That is a very valid gospel call. It's not glamorous, but it's a valid gospel call. And there's many a mother who struggles to yield to that. But that's a call, a valid gospel call. You are called to submit yourself to Christ's authority and on Christ's authority to yield what might even be your priorities, your desires on the altar of what Christ has asked you to do. And the spirit of this is truly best expressed through the words of Paul in Philippians 3. It's a passage I like to go to often. Paul says in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost to, for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his 
death. It's very easy, Christian, to rationalize allowing your priorities, other priorities, to stand in the way of the call of the gospel upon your life. And I'm not here to tell you what that call may or may not be. I'm not here to tell you everyone should become a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist. I'm not even here telling you that everyone should devote their waking hours to some direct ministerial pursuit of some kind. But I am here calling you to count all things but loss for Christ. To follow the call of the gospel where it leads. To put yourself on the altar, your job, your family, your ambitions, your desires, and wrap them up in the claim of the gospel upon your life on the basis of the authority of Christ if and only if you might live in the knowledge of Christ, that you might know him, that you might know the power of his resurrection, that you might know the fellowship of his sufferings, that you might be made conformable unto his death. And in order to do that, we must leave all. We must die ourselves. By what authority are you operating, Christian? Who is in charge? If you're casting your nets and Jesus says, follow me, will you? If you're mending your nets with your father and Jesus says, follow me, will you? Or does some other claim hold sway upon your obedience? Point number two. The call of the gospel is an authoritative call to be a fisher of men. Now, the call that Jesus gave to Simon, Andrew, James, and John is not necessarily the same call that rests on you and I. And yet, as we go to Mark 16, we read these words. This is the very end of the book of Mark. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I'm ruining the end for you. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And our memory verse for last month was 1 Peter 2.9, right? Reminding us that our charge is that we might show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness and to his marvelous light. And we read in Jude, verse 23, that we are to pull men out of the fire. And we read in 1 Peter 3, 15, that we are to have an answer for every man that would ask us of the hope that lies within us. And on the authority of God, we ask the question, why are you here? As a Christian, what is your purpose? Why did God not take you to heaven the minute that you accepted Christ as Savior? Why did he leave you here? Well, the scriptures tell us we are ambassadors. We are kingdom citizens under the divine authority of our king, walking on this earth as strangers and pilgrims. We are representatives of another land, of another way. Unto what end? Is it not that we might by all means win some? Is it not that our life, our testimony, our devotion to the gospel might pierce the hearts of men and compel them unto the truths which we hold in Christ? Are you a fisher of men? Are we not supposed to be fishers of men? I don't ask here about math method. There's no value in me standing here telling you that you'd better feel guilty if you've not led someone to the Lord recently or knocked on a certain number of doors or handed out a certain number of tracts any more than a fisherman giving another fisherman grief because he doesn't use a certain method or fish in a certain spot or use a certain lure or a bait which he prefers. Methods and effectiveness are not necessarily my point. It's not at all my point this evening. We're in different seasons of life. We're in different spheres of influence. But let me ask you this. Do the people within the sphere of influence that you have know that you are a follower of Christ? Do they know that there is a difference in you? Is that difference evident? Do you live in the distinction of the gospel? Does your life reflect the principles by which others see the hope of the gospel in you? Are you equipped to share of that hope if and when they ask you? Or are you ill-equipped unto that task? Are you thoughtful about the ways that you can bring men and women into contemplations of eternity? Because eternity is coming. Because every single one of us 
is going to die. And for a lot of us, it's going to be sooner than later. And that's a question which will always root itself in the heart of men. What will happen when I die? And what if they see you not afraid of that question? And maybe, just maybe, they'll wonder why. For some, the gospel asks more than others. Your burdens and your giftings compel you to a higher degree of service. Are you equipped to tell? To seek the fields that are white unto harvest? Or is something standing in the way of what the gospel has asked of you? Has Jesus called and said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men? And you've said, yeah, but my nets. Yeah, but my father. And you've been hesitant to leave all and follow. And take note, everyone, everyone, how I said that. This isn't about results. This isn't about metrics. This is about authority and obedience. The results belong to God. What I'm asking you about is whether or not you are regarding the proper authorities in your life and you are obedient to them. The authority of the gospel. Are you obeying it? What is Christ's commission asking of you? Not asking of me. Do not compare yourself to Pastor Wickler. I have a call. I have a commission. You have one too. Yours is not mine. Mine is not yours. Where is yours? The gospel of Jesus Christ calls and says, follow me. It's a call of authority. By the Son of God, who is validated to be the Son of God by power and by testimony. And it's there for those who are listening. And when we leave all and follow, we follow him into his commission that we would make fishers of men. Are we being obedient to the gospel's call? Does the gospel's call hold authority in our lives? Does the commission of the Son of God compel us as it ought? Are you willing to leave the nets and follow? Are you willing to leave your father and follow? Not because your callousness is toward your family. Not because your calculus has led you to believe that this is the way for most material wellness or success. Or even not because you think that you have a better chance than most of, of, of winning more people to Christ or whatever the case may be. But because the Son of God has asked it of you. And on His authority will you simply obey. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.